Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. And I'm Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based educational organization also in the highlands of Peru. Today, we are thrilled to speak with Megan Call Cummings, Assistant Professor of Research Methods at the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason University, as well as the mother of four geniuses who are currently doing remote learning and have also figured out how to pick locks. So they may or may not make a cameo on today's podcast. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So today we want to talk about some of your research. You shared with us three really interesting articles, and we want to dive into some of the major themes that you've mentioned in these articles. So first, we want to talk a little bit about the role of photo voice in action research, because we think that's a really important method within the methodology, the epistemological ontological framework of action research. And photo voice, as you mentioned in your article, may or may not be explicitly used in a way that is meaningful or not, depending on how you approach it. So I think it's something that's really worth talking about in action research. For those of us who may not know what photo voice is, can you give us a little bit of a definition of photo voice? Sure, definitely. And if you are interested, I would dig into Carolyn Wang's work. She really is kind of the grandmother or founder or whatever of the photo voice method. Carolyn Wang developed this method by giving disposable cameras to women um, in rural China. That was seen as a huge incentive just in and of itself. But then the idea was they were quote unquote empowered because that word is kind of awful and overused, but for lack of more time, they are kind of empowered to show their everyday lives or their realities or their truth or whatever you want to say. Sometimes around a theme, sometimes not. Sometimes that theme or that thing that is most important to them comes out later. So these days, because everybody has a cell phone or some other way to easily take pictures, photo voice is an action research or participatory action research method where a group of people take pictures around a theme or not. Again, it might be like take a picture of your everyday life or whatever. And then they develop some sort of narrative or extended caption or story to kind of describe or explain or give meaning to or more meaning to that photograph. Then usually the pictures along with those extended captions are put in some sort of exhibition. Of course, pre-COVID, that would have been, you know, face-to-face, something to which you're inviting like policymakers, decision makers. You basically want to get their eyes on these photos and on these narratives to hopefully work for some sort of social change. So you can imagine how this would work in like 
Flint, Michigan, right? Where you're trying to get decision makers to listen to people who are not typically listened to. You can also see how this can be done in schools and classrooms and other areas as well. So that's kind of a short snapshot, unintended, of photo voice. Nice. So in your article, The Power of In Photo Voice, you talk a little bit about how there is a epistemological difference or maybe an underpinning epistemological stance to participatory action research. And photo voice may or may not align with that depending on how you structure it. So could you talk a little bit about that, the ways in which participatory action research has this underlying epistemological stance and how photo voice may or may not engage in what that is? Yeah, so first I'd have to step back and kind of put my stake in the ground as it were this is all par according to me, right? Participatory action research as I see it and as I want everybody else to do it. And so participatory action research, according to Megan, is inherently critical. It's inherently political. And whenever those pieces of it are ripped from it or are kind of not fully foregrounded, I believe it's not really par. And it's some kind of co-opted version of it to kind of point to participants or point to myself as a cool like participatory researcher in air quotes, but it's not really par. And so kind of putting that stake in the ground, photo voice as a method that can, can or may fall under the umbrella of that kind of political, social change oriented, justice oriented par it can fit under that umbrella if it also lives up to those kind of orientations. So what we're seeing now, or I would say maybe in the last five to 10 years, is a real uptick in engaging in photo voice as more of a school-based intervention. And often it's linked to literacy goals. And so that's where you see that that paper come in about that one experience that I had, which we can talk more about. Yeah, I would love to talk more about it because I found that article really fascinating, really interesting. I had always kind of heard about this method from afar, but I've never really read anything about it. And you did a really good job, I think, showing the complexities really that exist in what's a, se a seemingly simple method, right? People take pictures and talk about them, right? right. But I think beneath the surface, there's a lot of complexity worth pulling out. So I think it'd be really cool if we could go through some of those complexities, if we could talk through them for anybody that might be interested in this type of method. Does that work for you? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So, well, first of all, you mentioned up front in your article that there's sort of like an overall challenge as it relates to this method, right? And you note that essentially, I quote, it runs the risk of unintended consequences that may reproduce traditional taken for granted power structures that are meant to be challenged and disrupted by participatory approaches like photo voice, right? So can we dive into that a little bit? Like to me, that means is it's almost been something that's been like taken for granted or co-opted, right? And become mainstream, if you will. And what, what is the impact of that if that is the case? And, and please correct me if I'm wrong or, or add more to how I'm interpreting this challenge. Yeah, thanks, Adam. So I'll talk a little bit about the context of the project because that'll help us dive in together those complexities and tensions that my group of co-researchers and co-authors experienced and talked about in that um, article. 
So it was, I think, in my very first year of my tenure track position at George Mason University, I was getting to know colleagues and some of your listeners may may be really familiar with like that first year, right? You're kind of finding your feet, you're trying to figure out, okay, you know, what's my next move post-dissertation or post-postdoc or whatever it is, trying to figure out, especially as action researchers or as participatory action researchers, you're going to be somewhere long-term probably, Right. You're not like a fly-in, fly-out kind of researcher. So that was where I was at that time. I was really trying to figure out, okay, where's my next kind of research home going to be? I have a very good colleague who apparently saw my CV or something and sent me his CV and said like, hey, we've got some cool connections. Let's talk. And he was doing this photo voice project. And he had done these types of photo voice projects or interventions in high schools through like English programs, because he comes from an English kind of teaching background. He had done this a lot, like he'd really built his career on doing these photo voice projects in English classrooms. And so he invited me to come along. So I was like, that'll be great. I'll get to know you. I'll get to know a local school, whatever. But this was a little bit different for him. This was in a middle school. And unlike any other projects that he had ever done before, it was with English as a second language or English as another language students. Many of these students, just because of the geographical area that they are from in Northern Virginia in the United States, had very recently come to the United States. Keep in mind also, this like adds another kind of layer onto it. This was in the fall of Wait For It. 2016. Okay, so in the US, that's like the last presidential election that we had. This is the election that brought Trump to office. And so we're going into this classroom, middle school, so that's sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in the United States with 30 to 40 students who had, I'm not kidding you, like three of these students had come in the week preceding when we arrived in their classroom, brand new. They're also not, you know, there's an expectation that like they're all Spanish speakers or whatever. No, like they were speaking Bengali, they were speaking Arabic, they were, I mean, everything. And so we were coming in as I believe a fully white research team, about 10 doctoral students, myself, I am white, this senior faculty member also white, right? I mean, I can just imagine your listeners just cringing, right? You can just see and feel like the grossness, the layered difficulty, right, that we're entering these spaces with. So we're adults, they're children, we're seen as like teachers and researchers and knowers, they're like, you just arrived in our country or whatever. They are almost all identified as brown or black. There's just these layers upon layers of our dynamics and and weirdness. And so we get in there, And we're like, hey, we're going to do this project and you're going to do it with us. And it's so cool because you'll get to take pictures and you're going to tell us what's wrong with your community or your world. And then this project is going to like help address it. I'm doing this in like very stark language, of course. It was not this stark, but it was pretty much that's what we were doing. And so... The thing is, we all kind of felt weird about it, but we didn't really know what to do. I was like second in command or whatever you want to call it. So I didn't really feel like I could be like, this is weird. We should not do this. I was also like, I had these self-interests, right, about wanting to get into a school 
working toward tenure, all these things. So I didn't like blow it all up. We were also guests of the teachers, right? So they wanted us there. So we didn't feel we could be like, this is a really bad idea that you have here. So there were all these like tensions that were layering on each other that we just couldn't really figure out in the moment how to deal with them or how to address them. Or maybe, you know, one of us thought about it and the other one didn't, we just didn't communicate properly or whatever it was, right? There were all these layers. So that's the context. There were all these layers of power dynamics that photo voices intended to not only address, but to like minimize, right? Photo voices intended and par, they are both intended to flip the script of power, whether it is in schools or in prisons or other institutions or just within society. That is its intention, right? To say, yes, I am an expert in one thing or in a couple of things, but I am not an expert in your life or in your community or in your daily living or whatever it is. You are that expert. Please let's work together to figure out how things can change or things can be highlighted or whatever it is. And so that particular opportunity just didn't do that. And unfortunately, we actually see that a lot when it comes to photo voice in schools. It is used as a typical classroom intervention or even worse, like assignment, right? I heard this cool thing. I read this cool article about photo voice. Let's do it here and you're going to get a grade on it. Thank you so much for sharing that honest dialogue. And I'd like to put photo voice aside for just a second and circle back to it because I'm nodding as I'm listening to you say this because I have a feeling, you know, I'm doing action research right now for my own dissertation and I can relate to that, right? And, and the point that I want to pull out from what you just said is that I have a feeling that that's not uncommon in action research, yeah. right? I think that action research looks beautiful on paper right? And in theory, it also looks beautiful, right? All these wonderful ideologies about, you know, participation and, demo and democratization and giving people voice and, and getting involved in what they're doing and drawing, you know, removing that line that typically separates researchers from people being researched. But I think in practice, while it's absolutely possible and feasible, we've all seen it and seen examples of it. I just think it's a lot easier said than done. So I want to kind of interject based on what you just said is in hindsight, right? Looking back on how you were feeling and all those tensions you were feeling at the time in the moment, is there anything that you could have done differently in the moment to shift that imbalance of power that you were feeling and kind of like re-straighten the wheel? And I'm, I'm saying this not just with respect to photo voice or that particular project, but anybody perhaps that's starting or getting going with an action research investigation and starting to say to themselves, oh shit, all of a sudden, like, I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. Yeah. So first of all, I will say that power structures are real. Me as a first year tenure track faculty member going in, partnering with or apprenticing to whatever you want to call it, this very senior male faculty member, even in hindsight, but also being real about that hindsight, right? I'm not sure that I would have felt confident or comfortable enough to bring anything up, really, that could have seemed like 
I was challenging this, this faculty member because his whole career was built on this approach, is built on this approach. And I'm just not sure that I would have done that. In a perfect world or in a world with a Megan who has more confidence, yes, I should have made more space for, and now directly kind of addressing your point, Adam, or your question, making more space for dialogue is crucial. At the very beginning, we jumped into this, right? This teacher came to us, came to this senior faculty member and said, can you come like next week, basically? Can you do this over the course of six or eight or 10 weeks? We should have had way more dialogue ahead of time to make sure that we were all on the same page, the teacher, the faculty member, myself, the doctoral students, so that these things would have bubbled up to the surface, right? As we engaged in dialogue, about what are we gonna do? Who are these students, et cetera? Let's think about the time we're in right now. These things would have bubbled up and we could have potentially addressed at least some of them, right? Ahead of time or planned for how to um, grapple with them throughout the process. So over and over, I will fall back on dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Dialogue is really important and it really resonates with me. I'm curious too, because something that you mentioned in your response to Adam, which I want to follow up on is the amount of time and the role of relationships. So I know that action research and participatory action research really focus on how relationships are developed and making sure that they're equitable and just. And it sounds like there was some tension within you recognizing that you didn't really have relationships with the students yet. And I'm curious because it's true, power structures are real. Those power structures also create senses of performativity, right? So you go in and you need to perform in some way because there's an expectation. And I'm curious in an ideal world or in a world where you didn't feel constrained by some of these dynamics, how you might have gone about shifting that, or even just looking back on it, you know, what might be some of the ways you could, you could think through those issues? Thanks. Yeah. So I'll compare it with the project that I've been involved with now for, for four years. So the year after this project, I was still looking for that research home. And I went to the school literally down the street where my kids, one of my kids goes to high school. It happens to be connected to the College of Education and Human Development. They host our interns, our pre-service teachers there. So I, I kind of had an in there had a meeting with the principal as a kind of community gatekeeper, right? And I just said, hey, this is PAR. This is kind of what we do. Here are some examples of things I've done. Do you have any ideas or thoughts as I'm talking about this of things that you would love to address that you just haven't been able to because, frankly, he's hurting cats. It's like a high school of 3,000 people, right? He doesn't have time to like, let's do photo voice. And he gave me a list of like 10 things that he that he would love to address but couldn't. I spent six to eight months talking to teachers and students at that school about those ideas that the principal had, one in particular around the idea of creating social cohesion at the school. I, I just talked to kids and teachers, I mean, I bribed them with pizza and donuts to like show up. But ultimately, at the end of one academic year, after having these conversations with kids and with adults at the school, I number one had a really close friend in one of the teachers. She's now one of my best friends. We've been working together for four years. And also had had students that 
I mean, I think I can say, and I think I can speak for them. I think they trusted me to be like a real person um, and to not be like researcher, capital R person. And I, I trusted them to say what they wanted to do and what they didn't want to do. And, and then we moved forward there. So just to compare the difference, I took a year to even like name a research project, like not that you have to name a research project or whatever, but you know, to say, this is the thing that we're doing at this school. It makes it really hard to get funders, right? When you're like, can you fund me for a year to like talk to students? They usually don't want to do that, which is why we go on a shoestring. But the difference there is huge, right? The photo voice project at the middle school was like, can you come in? Can you fly in? Right. I talked about fly in, fly out researchers. Can you fly in for six weeks, do this thing, perform, right? Like you said, basically be the photo voice researcher, fun people with jazz hands. And then we'll do this cool exhibit because community members will think it's cool. And then, then you'll be done and, and we've never talked to those kids again. Right. And so just the difference there, I think is telling. Yeah, absolutely. It really makes a huge difference, right? I know that in my experience, and I just want to say that, you know, bribing people with food is probably the one universal thing that can make any project at least get off the ground, right? I've definitely done that a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, starting to build those kinds of dynamics and relationships to be a real person and not perform, I think that's really important. I, you know, at least for Adam and I, we're both white dudes who are working in Peru, right? So, and we're working with people who primarily are Quechua speaking. So they also are considered as ethno-linguistic groups that are marginalized and would be in the United States considered brown as a group. Yeah. So there's also a lot of history, right? There's a lot of historical assumptions and power dynamics and structures that you have to navigate to figure out how do we break out of these structures and oppressive norms that are foisted upon us through no fault of our own, but it's now our responsibility to break out of. How do we break out of those as researchers? And then also, how do we help to do what you say in your article, which is start building from the ground up, from grassroots up, new structures that work better for the students that are more socially just or for the participants? Yeah, I've really thought a lot about this, especially over the past six, seven months since the murder of George Floyd, but before that too. So I think I said I identify as white. I do, my children are identified as black and biracial and my partner is black. And so for the past 10 years, since we have become legally a family and really for my whole life, right? My racial consciousness and kind of awareness of my own privilege has just grown steadily and not, not steadily actually in jumps and starts, but definitely over the past six or seven months have just been really confronted with questions about who I am and who I want to be as a researcher. It's not very hard to look at my CV and see that for the past five or so years, I, as a white woman, have worked with pretty much majority black and brown students, mostly high school students. And I've enjoyed that, but as we've kind of talked about, and Joe, as you bring up, there's always been this backgrounded and sometimes foregrounded just discomfort with that and with my place in um, youth participatory action research. It just feels at times gross, right? <laughs> for lack of a more intelligent sounding word, right? There's I talked about the, the grossness of empowerment and, and that idea or ideal, the idea of giving voice 
is deeply disconcerting to me. You know, we try to come up with different verbs for it. No, we're not giving voice. We're amplifying voice. It's like, really? <laughs> okay. But it's it's ultimately the same thing, right? And And so number one, just to say, I totally feel you guys in terms of that discomfort of differing positionalities. But over the past six months, I've just felt more and more uncomfortable and really have considered shifting much of my research agenda and research trajectory because we see at least in the United States like there are all these initiatives all this funding about like STEM with black and brown kids or XYZ with like under-resourced communities it's all just euphemisms right but oftentimes from my perspective what needs to happen is going back to dialogue, there need to be dialogic opportunities for white people like me to grapple with and understand history of racism, their own privilege, and how to use it for social change, etc, etc, etc. I'm nothing against anyone else's research with, I mean, you guys are doing great work. It's just me personally. I have really felt like, hmm, you know, Megan, I might need to shift this a little bit. There are a few really, really amazing scholars that I look up to who do work with like privileged white kids, right? Why par with, with privileged white kids through like social studies curriculum and things like that. And not that I'm going to do exactly that thing, but I've, I've been considering how can we do something different here? Yeah, this is a really complicated question, right? Because it is like, right now we're in a pivotal moment for First and foremost, just defining what is social justice? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How is it lived for everybody? And there's a lot of complexity with that because even in the name of social justice, there are a lot of movements that end up becoming unjust just in the way that they're enacted and, and how they get done. And how do people who find themselves in different positions in society work towards social justice and where are they most kind of useful in the communities that they are part of and, and how they find themselves. You know, I, at least for me, having worked in with the communities that I work with for the past 10 years, that's just like, that's where I am. Like I'm in it with everybody. And so that's a different kind of relationship now where we're what's considered uh, Aini, which is a network of reciprocity is, is where I'm embedded. So it's a different kind of thing. But as a researcher that you're talking about, I totally understand what you're saying, which is where, like, after this moment, after George Floyd, with BLM, with, you know, Biden and Kamala Harris coming in, what do researchers do and how do they find themselves to be working towards social justice and not continuing to create unjust structures? That's a really tough question. And I think action research actually is best situated to kind of address some of these things because it's about the how. It's about those relationships, it's about reflecting and that reflexivity on on one's positionality and what social justice is and looks like according to the people who it affects most, right? Not according to the people. Yeah, right. Give me one second. Speaking of that cameo, just a minute. Okay. Hi. Hi. Say hi. What's your name? Abby. Can you spell it for them? It's E-A-B-E-Y. As far as I'm concerned, Tabby can hang as long as Great. she wants. Tabby, we have some questions for you. <laughs> oh, Tabby. <laughs> okay, go in your room and I'll be there as soon as I'm done, okay? Love you.
it's really inspiring to hear you talk i have to be honest and like it's really noble to hear how critical you're being honest with yourself about this and, and saying maybe it is time to i don't know you know zag or shift or or, or really start owning some of these personal and professional philosophies that you've developed as it relates to your role as a researcher. I guess where I wanted to bring it back to has to do with just kind of action research overall, right? Which inherently, the, the reason it, it even exists is to create some sort of change, right? To create social positive change. It's at least part of it, yeah, a major part of it. And I'm sitting here hearing you guys talking and asking myself, and, and one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is like, we want to shift and diverge from like, quote unquote, more traditional research methods where an article gets published and shelved and it never gets disseminated out to, or, or helping out anybody, right? So, ooh, we're pat ourselves in the back. We're action researchers. We're, we're shifting away from that and doing great stuff. But I mean, while we're being critical, I think it's worth asking like, what are, I mean, how is it possible that we can actually show meaningful outputs through action research? Like, have you experienced that? I mean, I, I almost feel like from what I'm hearing you say, like you keep running into walls where you, your expectations are set, but then the critical side comes out, right? Because perhaps, I don't know, it, it isn't possible to just put intention behind an idea and say, I'm going to change it. I'm going to shift power. I'm going to bring people along in this process and make their lives better. Perhaps it, it isn't that easy or possible at all. So I guess my question is, you know, have you experienced success or real powerful, meaningful outcomes from any of your time as a scholar in implementing investigations as such? Yeah. So it's funny that you ask about that because often I write about my failures because <laughs> I figure, you know, that's the best way to learn. And also, I think academia is full of really nice, pretty journal articles that show you step one, step two, step three, and the beautiful outcomes. And I think truly, it's not often like that. So I often write about messiness and failures and things. And you ask about, you know, have I seen successes or, or whatever other word we want to use from that. Honestly, when, when you asked that, my first thought was not really, but it's all about what you think success is or a lot of times in action research or participatory action research we talk about like transformation or emancipation right you we use all these fancy words for ultimately what we would probably characterize as success or failure right i will say for my dissertation adam since you're dissertating right now you might find some value in this i don't know but i was invited by my aunt to come to her uh, high school classroom, and, and that's where the dissertation occurred. It was a youth participatory action research project. And over the course of 18 months, I worked with these students, all of them Latinx students. And the research question that they kind of came up with was, why are our teachers racist? And so over 18 months, we did photo voice as one thing, but also methods like theater of the oppressed and different interview type methods and things. And at the end, I got to my dissertation defense and I was like, crap, like people are still racist there and teachers are still racist. It was a total failure, right? Like I didn't really think that there's always that question of impact, right? You always get the so what question. I hate that question. You know, what did you actually do? You were there for 18 months. What happened, right? Well, 
racism is still in that little Idaho dairy town alive and well, because I just went back there this last summer and my black daughter was in the front of that same aunt's house getting something from my aunt's car and a police officer rolled up and rolled down his window and asked her in this like super creepy way, you know, how she was doing and what was going on. And she said, you know, nothing officer with a smile and he eventually left, but it's still alive and well. So then what the heck did my dissertation do, right? And then we see that constantly, right? In lots of PAR projects. Oftentimes we don't see the tangible effects. Sometimes we do, but I think most often, I'm gonna go back to what I said at the beginning, that dialogue is crucial. And it's not about empowering it's not about like giving power or giving voice or like magically lifting up the oppressed or whatever. It's about mutual understanding, mutual education. I go back to Paulo Freire like every time, right? It's about mutual recognition, mutual implication. It's about my learning just as much as it is another's. And I think, you know, that's where we see the seeds of more systemic change is really individual. I just want to cut in real quick, just because what you said reminded me, and then you can finish your question, Adam, sorry. You just reminded me of a quote, because so I taught in uh, middle school in the South Bronx and then in Baltimore City. I'm from Baltimore originally. And one of the things that, it's probably a quote from somebody famous, but I don't remember who said it, but it's like being an educator is the hardest job because the fruits of your labor, you will never see. Mm. And I feel like there's a lot of truth to that as an educator, but also as an action researcher, because there may not be tangible changes, like you said, immediately. But, you know, you did from that article, there were some students who were like, yeah, like my voice, my generation is going to make this change. And that may or may not have been an experience that they would have had, had you not been there. Right. So I know that the critical side of us is really important to hold, but there's also that like pockets of hope that we need to see sometimes. And I feel like you had that in that article too. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, thanks. Part of your question was around like, how do we disseminate in creative ways or how do we how do we get this out there? At least that's what I heard from your question. I, I will say podcasts are awesome. There are also small ways to rock the boat. Again, I, I just think of myself, Adam, in your position dissertating, like, you know, I got approval to do a fully digital dissertation. And your words, when you said like a book that just sits in a library collecting dust or whatever, that those, that's exactly what I said, right? To my dissertation committee. I said, there is no way that I can do a participatory action research project for 18 months and be like, woo, we're all equal and it's all equitable and participatory. And then like go write a five chapter dissertation and be like, peace out guys. And and so we co-created a dissertation and my aunt was on the dissertation committee. She called in and she was there. I don't know about a voting member, but she spoke her piece about the work that we did. And so I think as as scholars, as students, as action researchers, as participatory action researchers, we just can't take the system as it is, right? Push, push back. You know, it's so funny because I wrote like this big, long request to the dean of the graduate school at Indiana University, where I was getting my PhD and you know, had all these reasons why I should do a digital dissertation and all these examples from like CUNY and all these places. And he just wrote back and was like, yeah, whatever your dissertation committee signs off on is fine. Like it wasn't even a thing. And so 
of course, one member of my dissertation committee did say, you know, it's all well and good, Megan, but you need to get a job. So there's some convincing and some justification and things. But, you know, I, I think sometimes our imagination really limits us. And, and not that a digital dissertation is like the most imaginative thing, but it was actually a big deal. Nobody had ever done that before at, at the university. And it's a living thing, right? We've continued to add to it. And so it doesn't become that dead book on a shelf that nobody ever looks at again. I'm with you. And we're dancing around two different topics now, but I kind of yeah, want to tie sorry. them together. One being this idea of like, no, it's okay. No, because they connect, right? One, one being these having to do with sort of measurable, tangible outputs or impact. And then, then another having to do with sort of academia and the role of scholarship and action researchers and the way in which we are or are not enforcing or reinforcing the power and doing the things that we say that we want to do. And, and the way I want to try and connect those has to do with a topic we've spoken about in this podcast. And it basically has to do with this idea of like scholar practitionership or practitioner scholarship. Because, you know, my background is in international development and working with local communities here in the highlands of Peru. And the reason I raise that is because in international development, it's also viewed through this very linear perspective where it's like, I'm going to do A, I'm going to do some activity and it's going to lead to some measurable outcome, which is then going to lead to a, heart, a tangible output and ultimately like, woohoo, impact, right? But that's not the way it works in the world. That's not the way it works in reality. And that's not the way it works in, in research. I don't think either. Like in your example with your dissertation, right? I don't think you can say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z through my research or dissertation, then all of a sudden end racism, right? But you can contribute to the discussion. You can contribute to the process, right? You can look at the ways that you screwed up. You can look at your successes and you can share that with other people who share similar worldviews or philosophies. And I think taking one step forward to being able to achieve that larger macro level impact is in itself a success, right? Can you call it, we achieve social change? I don't know, perhaps that's a stretch, right? But can you can you call it a step towards systemic change? I certainly think so. You know, being able to connect what you're doing in the classroom and what you're doing in your investigations and what you're doing in your research and, and actually making sure that that translates into the field, that translates into some sort of behavior change, right? That it, it's actually resonating with the people in which it really matters, well, to me, that makes it worth it. As, ends, of course, staying critical, right? You have to be able to look back and say, how, what, what, where am I off here, right? Because I think that's as powerful as anything in moving forward towards a larger systemic shift. I've been thinking about this a lot because as I write my dissertation and I go back to my positionality, it's circling back to this constantly, right? This idea of practitioner scholarship, right? And that's kind of where I'm finding myself in all of this. My research exists in the field, but it also informs the work that we do as an organization. And is it going to completely, my research is in community resident voice and international service learning. Am I going to come up with the, the formula so that international service learning is actually meaningful for communities that host students in the United States? Probably not. But I think I'll be able to contribute to the discussion of how we could perhaps do that. And I think that should exist at the root of action research, frankly, or anybody that's interested in creating change through research. Yeah, definitely. And that connects with what Joe was saying earlier before the cameo, just about the role, or at least in my mind it does, about the role of action research and action researchers or participatory action research in these large social movements like Black Lives Matter or 
or other things and how, you know, Black Lives Matter probably is not going to come out and be like, Megan Call Cummings, your research is amazing and totally life-changing or whatever, right? But hopefully it can contribute to the conversation in meaningful ways. Yeah, what you're saying about conversations makes a lot of sense. We are living in a big conversation in the various spaces that we inhabit. We live in conversations. And because of that, because conversations are dialogical, there may not be a way to achieve social justice, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to go real deep on the philosophy. Living our lives as human beings is, is constantly fraught with tensions of what is, you know, out of these various goods that I can choose, what is the best good out of that? Or out of these very difficult decisions, what decision is going to cause the least harm, for example? And there's not really going to be an absolute because we don't live in a world of absolutes. We can't. If we have an absolute, then there wouldn't be a world, right? So the world is this living creation that is always going to be changing and developing and evolving. And hopefully we can push it towards an evolution that's much more inclusive of sharing the goods and making sure that the goods that people want and need to live meaningful, fulfilling lives are available to everybody. We have these histories of oppression and these histories of exclusion that we're fighting to work against as action researchers, as critical scholars, as people who have who care about these things. And whatever we do, we'll probably have some unintended consequences that we're then going to have to work to fix again. Maybe good unintended consequences, maybe negative unintended consequences. You know, there's this iterative process, right? So action research builds in this iterative process because we know no matter what we do, we're not going to accomplish something absolute. At the beginning of, of what you just said, around we live in a big conversation or we live in a constant conversation. And I, I wish that were true, but I'm speaking from the U.S. context, but probably other contexts as well. That's not true, right? We don't live in a conversation. We don't live in a dialogue. We live in a monologue, competing monologues, right? People say their piece and then they shut off. And that that's from a government perspective, but it's also person to person. It's media, right? We see that everywhere. And one of the exciting things that I wanted to share with you was this new project that I'm working on. So it's kind of a the next iteration of the Courageous Conversations project that I was telling you about with the local high school. So they're doing virtual schooling, right, this year. Everybody is, but the high school in particular, because that's where I'm working. And a few weeks into the semester, an email came out, a mandate from the superintendent that said, you all need to keep your videos on, your so you can be seen. And there was significant concern about that, right? There there can be major, there's voyeur issues, there's privacy issues, lots of things. Not to mention like, my daughter went to the bathroom off camera and she was like, why'd you turn your camera off? And my daughter was like, I went to the bathroom. Like, you know, I need to explain this to you or whatever. Anyway, the problem is they also are required to be on mute. So they are quite literally seen, but not heard. But it's funny enough, they want to do a photo voice project around this idea of seen but not heard. They, meaning the students that are co-researchers with me, have decided that they want to do a photo voice project and are in the middle of working on this photo voice project about how it feels to be literally, but also figuratively, seen but not heard. And in our last meeting, they talked about how, you know, the, the superintendent or the principal or the teachers will come out with like a survey that's like, tell us how you feel so that we can you know, better address your whatever social emotional needs or whatever. And they'll get the survey out and they'll feel really good about themselves, but they won't respond to it at all. So they're again, seen, but not heard. So it's this like double 
this like almost double silencing, right? They're being literally silenced through the mute button and also figuratively silenced because even though they will say, they'll call their principal or they'll tell their teachers, you know, we're super stressed out or this is too much work or um, I just can't pull this off, whatever it is, nobody's actually listening to them. They're just checking off the box that they did the survey. So anyway, it's just interesting when you talked about living in a conversation, I don't really think we are. I think we're living in a bunch of competing monologues. We're just kind of like my daughter, Tabby, sometimes does like, la, 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 right? Like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. But I'm going to say my piece and then and then shut you out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where action research and participatory action research, I think, can really contribute. I think, and that's not only an issue in like just society. I think it's an issue um, among researchers and in scholarship as well. And that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to participatory action research is because it foregrounds, it foregrounds the dialogue, it foregrounds and highlights the difficulties, the messiness that so often is ignored by other methods and methodologies. Something that you said kind of sparked an idea in my head, which was the role of context. So, you know, I'm from the U.S. I'm now living in Canada. One of the things, and, and maybe this is just a privilege that I have that is very rare in my position, but there's something about the way in which the communities I work uh, with in, in Ollante Tambo and in Payata, you would think, so just in terms of the history, there's such a historical consciousness and such a recognition of the change that there's so much hope there that doesn't exist here. And, yeah. and it's something that like, it's infectious too. So like everything you said is hundred percent resonates with me when it comes to the United States. And then I think about Peru and I think about their history and I think about the communities and it's just such a different space. Right. And it's really fascinating. Yeah. I I actually, Adam, both of you kind of reminded me of where I come from, which I don't like to actually admit to, but I used to work for the U S federal government. Hmm. Right. And I worked in like an embassy in Jamaica. It's where I met um, my current partner and also in Romania and uh, yeah, yeah. Context is everything. And and sometimes, yeah, I hear you about feeling more hopeful in other contexts. I'm going to try and reel this in and and maybe start working towards wrapping this up. Thanks, Adam. (laughs) We've talked about quite a few different things today, and they're all really fascinating and important as it relates not only to action research, but also social justice and frankly to humanity, right? And, and all of these are connected. We talked a little bit about photo voice, right? But that was really just a means or a mechanism to talk about some of these deeper issues as it related to whose voice is actually being heard, why? What are the things that we're doing so that they are being heard? And, and what is our role in that as researchers? So Megan, I'm gonna pass the mic to you to kind of Maybe you can leave us with one or two of your key takeaways, whether it be from our conversation today or from your experience in the field as an action researcher, a mother and a biracial family, your history working in the government. For, but with the intended audience being students, practitioners, anybody that's really interested, not necessarily just in action research, but anybody who's interested in creating some sort of social change. For somebody who is interested in getting into action research, what would be your advice to a student or practitioner who's thinking about using action research as their key methodology? Yeah, so the, my first thought that came to mind um, when you were asking me to sum up the conversation and say something brilliant was this idea that I kind of 
harp on repeatedly in my classes around epistemological consistency or congruency. So I'll back up and I'll say, you know, at least in our program, I don't know at McGill or at other universities, what is often taught in research is that you first need a research question, right? You, you know, it will be like introductions, first day of class. What's your name? What's your research question? Right. And that always mm-hmm. drives me insane. And I'm sure everybody <laughs> else in my college hates me because they're like, oh, you took Megan. What's your research question? And I'm like, don't worry about a research question. Because what I teach is first, you need to understand A, your positionality, who you are, and what position you take up in the world and how that relates to others and to systems. But then second, what are your epistemological commitments as a person? Who are you and what do you care about and what are you committed to? Then and only then should you start thinking about the kinds of research you want to do, the questions you want to ask, where you want to do your research, etc. Because Everything in order to, in my opinion, be a person that is not split into three separate people or four or five in your life, right? You're one person, whatever, as a student and one person, maybe at church and one person in your family, whatever. To be the same person and to be connected, you need to be doing things that feel personally fulfilling and that are consistent with your epistemological commitments. So that kind of hopefully maybe brilliant like lesson thing from today's discussion would be for like students and action researchers, think about your positionality and then link that to your commitments, but but especially link that to your epistemological commitments. So epistemology is kind of like how we know, right? How we learn. So if you think we learn in X way, what are you committed to doing through your research that will fulfill and then always go back to that? That's why circling back to that introductory photo voice example, that's why that was so difficult to me and to my co-authors as well, was it was so in contradiction to our epistemological commitments that we felt like we were performing as we talked about. We were different people, different researchers, and that felt yucky and And it made things so much harder because we couldn't be who we really were and we couldn't fulfill our epistemological commitments. When you're fulfilling your epistemological commitments, things are just easier. You feel more confident um, because you are being who you are and and doing what you care about. I think that's the mic drop right there. So I think that is the mic drop. Megan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. It was really nice to meet you. Yeah. Thank you again. This is great. Thank you. Yeah, Look cool. forward to hearing from you guys. Thanks, Vanessa and Shika. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast.